Hi, this is Emily Gibson. And this is Caitlin McFarland. And we're the co-founders of ATX Television Festival. And you are listening to the TV Campfire. Okay, Em, this is one of my favorite titles of any of the panels we <laughs> did. Did you come up with it? I don't think I did. I think Jen did. Okay, great. I mean, I wasn't gonna. Pants. I wasn't gonna tell you that it still couldn't be your favorite, but just I, mean, I have many things that I'm proud of. I have many things I'm proud of too. But I believe that this was Jen's, I mean, or even Sally's from back in the day, because this was her idea originally, who no longer works with us. But it's so apropos of like writers and a joke and a thing, which is I will long lead into the title <laughs> of this week's panel is a playwright walks into a writer's room. And obviously, I think it's pretty self-explanatory <laughs> that this panel is about playwrights kind of turn TV writers. I think it's they start as playwrights and get into the TV room, which apparently is a new trend. I really love when our titles are pretty straightforward. Yeah. As someone, I mean, we live in a scrolling world where we just scroll through things. Mm -hmm. And as much effort as we put into our descriptions, and as much as we him and haw and maybe argue and fight and take out commas and throw in commas. Add a colon. Add a colon. Mm -hmm. 100 colons. Well, actually, we do that in the titles. Oh, that, um, yeah, yeah. But I really love when it's like, oh, I completely understand. This is a clever title, yet I completely understand. Do you think what that we could have just like not written anything underneath it? I think 90% of our panels, we could not <laughs> write anything underneath and right, it guys. wouldn't really make a difference for who shows up. On social media, <laughs> please let us know if you would like us to get rid of panel descriptions because in all honesty, it would make all of us feel a lot better. It would also make us feel better if we could get rid of what panelists were going to be on it because oh, they always sure. change up to the last minute. So my whole goal in life... Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe not my entire life, but festival life is oh. to do a surprise festival where like we announce idea. nothing, nothing. And then everyone buys their badges and then they show up on Thursday and we're like, here, this is the festival. Here's who's here. Here's where you can go. Take, you know, 20 minutes, scroll through our one sentence titles, <laughs> decide what you want to go to and then just show up. Guys, second Twitter <laughs> A social media call out. Please let us know if you would like for a completely blank surprise television festival because we would love that as well. We need you to buy the tickets to it because we still that's what you still for the whole put thing. on the festival. But, but uh, I would love that. We get very nervous about like we're about to. Oh. We have told you some of our programming. <laughs> Clearly, guys, I'm going to show you behind the curtain that we're recording this before that. But we announced programming the first week of November, so you can go look at that. But ultimately, it's very stressful for us to tell you stuff this early. And please know that many, or at least some, I'm going to call one of the people that we announced, will probably not be able to make it. Kind of like too. on this panel. Yeah. Because <laughs> on was, this panel... Yep. Who was supposed to be? Oh, Liz Merriweather was supposed to be on this panel. Just to cover our bases, this panel has Tanya Siracho, creator of Vita, Rachel Roosh, who's the SVP of television at Bad Robot, Bo Williman, the creator and EP of The First and House of Cards, Alexander Wu, the co-creator, showrunner of The Terror, and it's moderated by Ben Travers. But we were supposed to have Liz Merriweather as well. And I forget, life, life happened. Yes, it would be so much better 
I think if we didn't have to tell you anyone couldn't come last minute. So you basically show up and we're like, look, here is who is coming. Yeah. Here is who is here. They're physically here. <laughs> they are in the building. Yeah. And if yeah. anyone has to cancel, because every once in a while someone is supposed to be on a Saturday and they cancel on a Friday. Yeah. Matt, uh, when we talked about our sex scenes panel, Matt yeah. Loria yep. canceled on mm, Thursday yeah. for Friday. I yes, think. which, I mean, does still happen. Guys, people get sick. I know. What are you supposed to do? You get sick. You know you get sick. <laughs> Do you do you plan your illnesses? <laughs> I went, oh my god, that would be amazing oh, if you could. I would totally plan my. Illnesses. I know that's the next thing. Like the universe says, you have to get sick three times this year. What Schedule days it. do you want? You cannot get sick June. No. What is our what the fourth, date? June fourth through seventh. Twenty so early. Yeah, it is early. I know. I it's know the earliest it will ever be. And then the next Except year, for the first year that we did it, June yeah, 1st or 3rd. That's now the earliest mm-hmm. it will ever be. And the year after, our 10th year, will be the latest that it will ever be. We're not talking about your 10 yet. No. Okay, I'm sorry. People want to talk about season 10. But yes, We're not we there. are planning really big things yeah, for season 10. Yeah. It's a surprise <laughs> It's a surprise for everyone, oh my us included. Oh, let's try 10. That I'm would be a great you, thing to do. I am telling you. Lay the seed now with everyone that is listening that... Not nine, because that's not enough, you know, heads up for you guys. I know you want to know things. things. And we've already announced things. It's too late. But 10, we would like to float the idea of a totally surprise, like magical grab bag, TV grab bag festival. Like, you know, you just pick it out of a hat. Sure. Great thing. A TV hat. (laughs) That you, you know, you grab a grab bag. You don't know what's inside it. Just you buy your ticket. You don't know what's inside it. This but is, you trust us. But you trust this us. This is 10 years in the making. Things By year 10, you have to trust us enough Yeah, that it's going to be magical TV camp. Yeah. Guys, just, just think about it. I can hear you now. I it's can hear all of, of you. like if you went to a play written by one of these lovely people and didn't know what the play was about. But does that happen? Do people nope. go to plays? No, nope, but I'm just trying about? to put it in context for this panel. Sure. I was about to say, I, I just I can hear everybody kind of grumbling and rolling their eyes. Yes, I can hear eye rolls. And I think that you should just sit with it for a little bit. Say six months even. Probably no, maybe a little less. Three months. The next three months, think about if year ten could be surprise for everyone involved and then get back to us. Okay, guys, after this panel, a playwright walks into a writer's room. Make sure you stick around to the very end because we have a little bonus s'more from our podcast at HQ, just a one-on-one interview with Alex Wu. But in the meantime, listen to A Playwright Walks Into a Writer's Room, moderated by Ben Travers from IndieWire. You're welcome. Hello, I'm Ben Travers from IndieWire. Um, thank you so much for coming out this morning. We've got a great panel, so I'm going to bring everybody out right now and get started. Uh, first and foremost, we have the Vita creator and executive producer, Tanya Siracho. <laughs> Little slight obstacle course to get through. Um, <laughs> next up, we have the senior vice president of television for Bad Robot, Rachel Rush. Uh, the first creator, writer, and executive producer, Bo Willimon. And, of course, the co-creator, showrunner, and executive producer of season two of The Terror, Alexander Wu. All right, everybody, thanks for coming out. Um, Thank you for having us. We have an esteemed group in front of us, and honestly, my first question is very simple. Um, 
if you are at a dinner party and somebody came up to you at this point in your career and they asked, what do you do? And you had to sum it up with one word. Would you describe yourself as a playwright still or a TV writer or something else if you prefer? Well, it depends what dinner party. <laughs> it's like your like your yeah, but um, partner's grandmother out of the industry, like just oh yeah. Um, I well now I do I do say I, I'm in TV or I, I make TV, but three years ago, four years ago, I wouldn't have said that. Um, there hasn't been a play that has come out of me in the past couple of years, and now I feel like a fraud when it comes to that um, being a playwright, you know, because like when I was being a playwright, like I, I was just pumping them out and now I'm not. So like, I feel like actively I'm not, but um, that's just a little battle that I'm, this is too much information for so early in the morning. Oh, we you started this out really well with like a lot of honesty yeah. and candor. <laughs> I'm an imposter. Okay. Like basically. <laughs> well, it's a little different for me right. because I, I was not a playwright. I was a dramaturg. No one knows what that is, but it's like, Oh, oh my God. Oh my thank God. you guys. This is the, this is the best room I've ever been in. with many people. This is awesome. <laughs> Um, so was a dramaturg and I would say I still am because that seems like a, a vocation rather than a job. So in that same way, but certainly I'm now, you know, a, a TV executive, but still in my heart, I still identify as a dramaturg. Um, I, I usually just think about, uh, I'm a writer, you know, and, uh, and I happen to, I happen to start writing plays and got lucky enough to write another other media, but but I started out as a painter and sort of stumbled into writing. So even when I say I'm a writer, I feel like a fraud because I feel like I should be saying painter. Um, so I, I don't. <clears throat> I think if there's a common theme among people that work in the arts is that you spend a lot of time feeling like a fraud. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's a really interesting point because I, I I never say I'm a playwright or I'm a TV writer. I always say I write plays. Like <laughs> some guy who happens to write plays or write, I write TV shows. It's it's never like felt like I'm like your identity. Writer. No, like, like 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 someone will find me out. I'll figure yeah. it out. Oh my god, it's like therapy right now. We all feel like frauds. This is good. We're getting deep right at yeah. the start of it. That's what we want in these panels. But I mean, to take it even further further back to the origins a little bit. I mean, what was it that first kind of got you interested in writing plays? Like when you were when you were coming up. Um, I'll I'll do the quick version of this. I I'm an immigrant. I came to I from Texas. I mean, I grew up in um, around Rio Grande Valley. And when I got there, um, I had a, a bad accent, and I joined speech and debate, thinking it was speech therapy, like they were going to get racks and reduction. Um, but I didn't speak English that well, so um, I didn't understand that. And then I kept going. Um, I kept my my. My mother kept taking me because the, the teacher said every Saturday, um, drop her off at the and give her with twenty dollars and sign this. And I kept coming back with um, a trophy, uh, and <laughs> and I was like, and she's like, what are you doing at these? At, at the speech reduction thing. And I'll, I don't know, I do it in front of a lot of people. And then they give me one of these, you know, and then, <laughs> and then cut to like drama club, you know, like that sort of led to that. And then um, when I was starting to do that uh, interp stuff, there was never lat Latina parts for me, you know? So then I started just in college, I'll just write some stuff for me. That's sort of how it started, because I, through the actor's point of view, there was no for a chubby Mexican with an accent. Like, there was nothing. So I was like, I, you know, that's sort of how I came through it through my accent, I guess, you know, and now it, it, it all has led up to here. Well, you have to tell us how you got into dramaturgy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's no skipping. I know. How does one accidentally fall into that? 
Um, I think, well, partly because I'm a terrible actress. So that, you know, is the start because I think acting is like the gateway drug for a lot of people when you're like, you know, you're sort of like a misfit teen and you're like, I'm going to go find my people and find my community and like, well, I'll be misfits together, but I'm shitty at acting. And so then I was like, okay, well, I'll do the costumes and, you know, I can sew and I can shop, but I can't draw. And then I realized that what I really wanted to do was talk to the director about like why we were making the choices that we were making with this show and all that sort of thing. And I just didn't know what a dramaturg was until I found out that I was sort of doing it. And I met someone else who did that. I was like, that's it. That's why I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Cause I didn't know that this weird hybrid job existed that was half being in rehearsal and half being a big library geek. So that's, that's what I started doing. And then I left theater, but that's another story for another question from Ben. <laughs> sort of a lot of tributaries that, that led into the river for me. Um, a, a couple important ones, I guess was, uh, do you guys know who Spalding Gray is yeah. familiar? So, uh, I grew up in St. Louis, and uh, one of my close friends was Liz Gray, Spalding Gray's niece. And uh, in St. Louis, there wasn't a pretty, there wasn't very much of a deep theater scene when I was growing up back in the '90s, the '80s and '90s. Um, mostly, it was the big touring road shows that came to the Muni or the Fox. Uh, musicals, mostly like you know, No No Nanette and Brigadoon, and uh, you know, or, or Miss Saigon if they wanted to get really edgy. Um, and, and then one day, my uh, and I was doing high school productions and stuff, and thought that was really great. And I just loved being in the room, whether I had a role. If I didn't get cast, uh, like I'll build a set, I'll tear tickets. I just I I want to be in that room. Um, but but my friend Liz, one day she said, you know, my uncle's coming to town to perform at the Edison Theater. Um, well, do you want to go see him do a monologue? I was like, a monologue? What? He's just going to like speak, like just by himself? She's like, yeah. I'm like, well, I don't know. And she's like, just come. So he did Grey's Anatomy, um, which if you haven't seen, there, there's a film version of it, which is really wonderful. Uh, it's, it's, it's terrific. And, and Spalding, for those of you who don't know, he would just sit on a stage at a wooden table with a glass of water and a notebook. And he created an entire universe with just his voice and his body. That's it. Uh, usually based on his own life. Um, and we went back to the Gray's house afterwards, and just uh, his brother, Rockwell Gray, taught at Webster University. Uh, Rocky's wife was my principal, and their kid was my friend. And we just sat in the kitchen while Spalding's kids played in the living room, and he just kept telling stories for hours. Um, at a little kitchen table as though the performance hadn't ended. And I guess for me, it was the first time I really felt... Um, the power of what the human body and voice and just words could do on a stage that you didn't necessarily need all those chorus dancers and all those show tunes and the big sets. And um, you just needed those simple elements. That's where it all began. Uh, and, and so I became obsessed with Spalding Gray uh, when I moved to New York for college. Um, I, I was painting mostly, but I, I, I felt this draw to the theater, even though I didn't think that's what I was going to do with my life. I ended up doing um, freshman year acting classes uh, with Maggie Gyllenhaal. Uh, we were both like 17 and doing scenes from Streetcar and, and like... <laughs> Burnt and burned this. I was I was pale and she was Anna, um, and she was fantastic and I was terrible. Uh, but I just wanted to be in that room. And, and eventually, senior year, um, I, I I had been painting mostly, and I got really frustrated with my painting, uh, and I just needed a break. So I decided I'd write a play as a lark 
you know, I hadn't, I hadn't been in the theater for a while and I felt that ache to, to return. And, uh, I wrote a terrible, terrible play called the, uh, the goat herd about a goat herd. Um, <laughs> And the mission to Mars, which I actually ended up writing a TV show about, and Muhammad Ali. How those things swirled together, I have no idea. It was a terrible play, but it, it won a little prize. I think I was the only person that submitted and just gave me enough, enough. <laughs> I, it, back in the day, they would actually put flyers in the student center like for prizes and stuff. And I just tore down the flyer and took it with me. And I think I was the only one who... Is submitted, but it just gave me enough motivation um, and encouragement to say maybe I should write a second one. And before you know it, you're writing plays. You're a guy who writes plays, you know, right? I don't know if you're a playwright yet, but you're writing plays, and that was my way in. I, uh, Bo and Tanya and Rachel, did did any of you do high school theater? Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay. Because I, I, have you ever had that experience of sitting on set and you're thinking, oh my god. I've been doing high school theater for the past 30 years. That's what I'm doing. I'm still doing theater club. All these other people were doing theater club, and they were crew, or they were cast, or, you know, and, and we're all still together in middle age doing the same thing. Because that's what I, I did. I started in high school. I was 15 years old, and, and then uh, I was a fiction writer, and... Uh, and realized it's a very lonely life writing books by yourself when you're 17, 18 years old, and uh, transitioned to, uh, to to being a playwright. And I went to drama school and uh, and and took many years to to, uh, to learn the craft. I thought it would be easy because I'd been doing theater and I'd been writing short stories. Uh, there was a transition, but uh, I started there in my early 20s and yeah, I've been doing it ever since. Well, Tanya, you talked a little bit about kind of, you know, um, finding your voice through this process like early on. Uh, but were there specific aspects for, for all of you about like kind of the craft that you practiced when you first started that really became kind of fundamental for what you're doing now? Were there elements of, of either, you know, the writing or the acting or um, any sort of kind of aspect of, of that early part of you that was like, oh, yeah, yeah, this got fine tuned and led me toward where I am today? Yeah, for me, I, I moved after studying theater at Boston University. I moved to Chicago. Uh, I love that town, and it's like a great theater town. So to grow up as, as a, like to have your voice, you know, nurtured. Um, and um, I started an all Latina theater company the, like the year after I got there. Um, so I was like 22 and, and dumb in a good way. Cause if not, I would not have started a company, you know? Um, and it was all female, all Latina. And I ran it for 10 years and for 10 years, no one told us we couldn't do, you know, of comedy about abortion or, um, uh, or that we were like, we were not the others, you know, we were the thing. Um, so like it was a really great place to grow up, you know? And I feel like that, the, the aesthetic, the mission that I had then, like, which is like Latina women front and center, um, we'll never run out of stories. We didn't, for 10 years, we didn't. They don't have to run out of stories, you know? That, that's the, sometimes people ask me, don't you, why do you want to limit yourself? And I'm like, I, we, you know, we're limitless. I don't understand that question. Um, and so I feel like now in TV, which is, is very much how I built the, you know, the writer's room is, there's one cis male, but the rest are all um, Latinas, um, all Latina directors, um, um, all female editors, um, Latina cinematographer. Like it's sort of the same thing. I just the mission just costs more now, you know, <laughs> and uh, and you have to convince people more because there's more money involved. But like 
um, thank God I had uh, at Stars, and I've only done one show, so I'm I'm still like a beginning showrunner. But I had um, Marta Fernandez was my uh, covering executive, and that is the formula. Like that made all the difference because she never, she was just like yes and you know. So she, I never, I never had to fight too hard for that. So I feel like all that stuff that I um, learned in 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 this Teatro Luna sort of playground, I'm still implementing. You know. I mean, Rachel, yeah, what about you? I mean, what what from kind of early on that you clung to about that has led you on this path? Because you've you've had a unique journey. Like it's exciting where you're at now and what you're able to do, but I mean, from where it started, it's it's you know, it could have gone anywhere. True. And I think, you know, I just started to get frustrated with a lot of the limitations of institutional theater. I mean, with what you're talking about, Tanya, it's like you got to do all those things because you had your own company, because you made it. And, you know, as somebody who was going to be like the dramaturg, the literary manager on staff at a theater the kind of theater that's established enough to have that kind of position that pays health insurance and all those sorts of, you know, things that one hopes for in their adult life. Um, already you're, you're starting to make a lot of compromises for that that say like, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe we'll make more of an effort to have, you know, maybe half women in this, in this season because you have six plays, but are you going to have, you know, again, it's not that you couldn't, but it's saying, especially a dozen years ago, are you going to have multiple queer writers of color in your season? It's like, oh, I don't know. That might be really, that might be tough for our subscriber base. And, you know, we might not get all of the season ticket sales for next year. And so, you know, there were all these things where I felt like I couldn't do enough to support writers whose work I believed in because of all of the, the pressures of the system. And it's, you know... I don't think it's theater's fault inherently. It's just that there's not enough money to go around and people are trying to do their best to support as many people as possible, but they're also trying not to lose their subscribers, like lose grant funding. There's a lot of fear and a lot of, you know, managing for the margins there. And I just felt like, you know, if you want to tell big, great stories, it can't be with such a small group of allowable people and it can't be with such a small audience who can afford to come to the theater or even with any grant program you got where, you know, it's like, oh, here's free tickets for high school students or discounted tickets for people under 35 even. It's like the sense that, oh, theater is for me. I'm a person who is wanted here at the theater. So there's a bit of the preaching to the choir. And part of what I love about being in television is a... You can have, you know, yeah, I'm developing projects with like a ton of women, people of color, queer people, because there's not that same limitation to be like, you only have six spots, like go, because failure is sort of built into the business. And so you might as well take a shot. You know, most most pitches aren't going to become pilots. Most pilots aren't going to become series. And because of that, you're like, well, why not? Why not just try the thing I love? We'll make a lot of safe choices and then I'll do a few things that I love. And those tend to be the ones that go all the way through anyway. So, you know, I like taking more shots and I like that more people can see the work and you don't have to be in a town that has a theater and you don't have to have somebody to drive you there. You don't have to have the money to get there. You don't have to have the confidence to be like, I should walk into this space. You can be in your home. You can be on the bus, on your phone. You know, I mean, the the ways that the stories come to you are so unmediated by you know, by all those those barriers of money and class, frankly. And I just, I appreciate how democratic it is. And that you also pay people. It's it's a really better system. 
Cheaper for everyone else, more money for everyone making it. Paying people seems good. Yeah, that seems like a plus. It's more fair. Um, well, well, Bo, just in terms of like kind of the 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 writing, like beginning as a as a playwright and beginning by writing plays, um, was there anything about starting off there that helped with your future scripts or you credit to like, well, I was trained as a playwright, so I have, you know, I, my dialogue seems more natural or I'm, I, my scene structure is a little better. Like, is there anything you look back and say, if I didn't have this, if I didn't start there, I don't know if I would have been as good or been able to pull this off or, or been able to set this up as well as I, I usually do? Well, I, I definitely think playwrights benefit um, when they when they move into writing screenplays uh, I, I tend to, when I hire writers, um, I have a heavy bias towards playwrights. Me too. Um, and, yeah, and one of the reasons for that is that uh, you th you cannot bullshit on a stage. You know, when you're in front of a live audience and um, you don't have editing to help you, you can't just like, well, if we just, you know, maybe pump up the score there and because we didn't quite get the emotional performance. There's so many tricks in the bag. And screenwriting is an amazing and difficult art and has many advantages that playwright that uh, the stage doesn't. You know, oftentimes you can tell uh, an entire story and what someone's doing with their hands that would normally be like a two page monologue because you, you have that ability to get in on those details um, and to, to really feel the intimacy of closeness or you know, sort of multiple angles that allow you to fully experience a space as opposed to maybe a proscenium experience, you know? Um, but, but at its basis form, uh, really all you have in the theater is, uh, it goes well back to Spalding Gray, you have a body, a voice, and then you have other bodies. Uh, and there's an actual chemical reaction that's happening. You know, as 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 my voice leaves my diaphragm right now, it creates sound waves that are actually molecules that are being agitated, that are then going to hit your eardrum, and be registered by your brain and your body as sound that is going to generate thought and emotion. Right. So it's an actual. There's actual physics and chemistry happening, uh, and you know it. You've all been in a play, a bad play. Uh, where, not necessarily if you're at, if you were actually in the play, that's the worst, right? But, <laughs> but, uh, but you just immediately know it. You know when when it's false. Um, and if you've written that play and you're sitting in the back row, you definitely know when it's false. Um, and uh, and 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 because you don't have all those tricks, uh, you you mostly have to communicate. You know. All, all drama is, really, is behavior over time. You're seeing people change over time through their behavior. Uh, but because you don't have all those close-ups, and I can't get in tight on those hands, um, I'm usually pretty far away from you, I ha you have to rely heavily, usually, on dialogue, um, which means that language becomes your main way of communicating behavior or the, the main tool by which the actors are able to communicate behavior. Um, and, and being able to really pare it down and, and, and not bullshit on that front without all the bells and whistles, to be able to sustain a scene maybe for 20 minutes, right? And, and in, a, in a film, uh, like two minutes is a pretty long scene, right? So you're doing 10 times that and you're not using cut to this, cut to that, exterior, interior. 
what's giving structure to that scene is much more complex because you, you're, you're navigating a sort of, um, you know, expansion and contraction of pacing. You're, 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 you're navigating the fact that I can't just cut away from one character to another to steer the story. I have to think about all of them on stage all the time. Um, it, 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 it can sometimes seem simpler when you're looking at the page than a screenplay, but actually it's far more complex. And I think bringing those tools to screenwriting, which is not easy, screenwriting is not easy, but you go a two-page scene, you know, and I can be anywhere I want and I don't have all those constrictions. Um, you, you bring all of that sort of focus and craft into a medium that then it like sort of liberates you, adds a lot of other tools, and it and it becomes an additive thing. I think it's very difficult sometimes for screenwriters to write a play because they're like, wait, I can't cut away, I can't suddenly be on a yacht, um, I can't I can't just describe what's happening on someone's face, yeah. like, and that's um, you know. It, so I think that those skills that the theater forces you to hone is something that is extremely beneficial to to writing a film because you know that if everything else is taken away and you're just left with the human voice you can still pull it off. Well, I mean Alexander the same same question really like when you when you started to to make that transition what did you credit toward your playwriting background what parts of it did you really keep relying on and and think that were honed well from uh, from writing plays as opposed to starting with TV or starting with film? Well, as a fan of, of Bo's work and, and uh, Tanya's work, uh, what you can tell, and it might even be, you know, it's not a conscious thought, is that a playwright, you know, comes from a place where theater is a metaphorical space and uh, and television for a very long time has defaulted to a very naturalistic realism with a flat American affect in terms of language. You know, very, very neutral. Uh, and I think a playwright sort of naturally has a set of tools in their toolbox to uh, find new and unusual ways to, uh, to uh, break out of that. Um, so I, I know it was in in the uh, uh, original House of Cards too, but the addressing, breaking the fourth wall is nothing unusual in theater, but totally revolutionary when, you know, when Frank Underwood did that. So, you know, being able to think metaphorically is one reason certainly why I favor playwrights and I love having playwrights in the room because there's more than one way to crack that scene rather than just going straight at it in a linear narrative. Like, what would people really say? How would they really talk? Um, there's, there's a lot of that. And in a climate where there's five trillion TV shows, it's, uh, it, it's nice to be able to approach it from a different way. Well, looking at it from kind of the other side, is there are there certain traps that that playwrights fall into when they start trying to write for television, where either they you know become uh, too reliant on dialogue, or their their uh, scenes are too flat because they're not incorporating enough of the quote unquote like cinematic style that a lot of people expect from TV in in 2019? Um, have you noticed any of that, or like noticed yourself doing any of that, or or, or just kind of had to pull people in? the right direction or in a different direction when you're making that adjustment? I, when I first 
I got on my first show. I'd never seen Final Draft. I didn't know what an outline was, all that stuff. And then the first scene I turned in was like very long. And then the second of the show was like, you know, each page is $100,000. Do you think your writing is worth $100,000? I was so scared. I was like, I was, no. It was like one page. You bring me that back in one page. and I. But that made me understand, oh, also because I was telling everything, kind of like everything that Bo said, you know. I had that, like, oh, no, you. I must explain it. You don't have to, you know. So that, um, but then on my show now, sometimes they'll be like, oh, this is a four-page scene. It's a little one-act play, another one-act play. Because they, they, it's like a lot of people come in, and, I, and for four pages, it, it doesn't seem like much, but it's a lot to, you know, choreograph, you know. And they're, they're, um, the directors always call them little one-act plays. I'm like, it's four pages, people. Yeah. <laughs> No, and I would say that that's what I see in, like, reading a lot of scripts, too, because I read, like, a ton of scripts from playwrights who are writing their first pilot, you know, and, like, it's not going to be done. It's just their writing sample right now. But it, it's definitely, it, they have not achieved the spareness that is eventually going to be there. And then also the sense of being able to pull someone in immediately in the first few moments because it's sort of, you know, if you're in the theater, like, you've made the contract to be there. You know, it's like, well, whether or not, I don't know, everything I call in theater, like, productive boredom, which is like, oh, my God, you've lulled me into this sense of security. And now you're going to, like, hit me really hard 40 minutes in, but, like, that's not an option, and especially if you're doing, like, a 30-minute show. Like, nope, there is no minute 40. Um, so things like that, I think, are hard. But to speak to, you know, what Bo was talking about before, I think that what the playwrights are so singularly good at is that character and that character over time and, and behavior through time because that's ultimately what I find sustaining in a show is that because they've written a character that is a fully fleshed out human being and not just like, oh, this was a cool idea I had, but like this is a person that I know and keep getting to know who has had all the things that have happened to them in the show happen and change them. And because of that, the stories that are available to that character in season four were not available to them in season one. And that's how you keep the show interesting and, and going forward because, you know, I mean, I guess the most classic example would be like Breaking Bad. You know, the Walter White of season one is doing a certain set of things. He cannot do the things he's doing by season four then. But like in order for the show to keep growing and changing, it can't be all plot. It can't be all like a cool idea, a cool concept, like world building. At the end of the day, it is down to those basic things. It's down to the voice. It's down to that human psyche. And to say, all the things that you, the audience, have watched me go through, I've really gone through, and they all weigh on me and have changed me and have taken me in a different direction. And I don't think that anyone is as good as playwrights at, at that. I know this is a question about like the pitfalls, but I just had to like give a shout out to how great no, playwrights are. That's it's all. It's always good to bring it back to the positive. So. But what what about you? Do you notice anything like that? Any sort of? Uh, well, I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna address a pet peeve, <laughs> um, which is that uh, when when I first started working in in Hollywood um, or, or or in film and television, there was a, a sort of notion that playwrights were really good at dialogue, right? Like that they're the dialogue people, and I just think it's utter bullshit, you know, it, because. Uh, you, it's like, you'll often hear, well, that's a, that person's good at plot, but this person's good at dialogue, you know? And <clears throat> plot is character, and dialogue is character, and dialogue is just one form of human behavior, right? So in the theater, yeah, you do rely upon language a lot, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're relying upon dialogue all the time. 
as Andrew was pointing out, like the 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 language is your pathway uh, to telling the story. Um, but it's not always just a patter back and forth, you know? I mean, if you're looking at Beckett, that's not necessarily dialogue, right? What is that? I don't know. It's Beckett, you know? Um, and certainly not naturalism. And so I think that, um, you know, it, it, it can be a misconception that it's like those, oh, playwrights are just going to write those three-page uh, monologues. I mean, we've all done it, of course. But 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 um, I, I, also, I also think that, like, you know, the, a notion that theater isn't cinematic is a misconception. In some ways, theater is more cinematic than a lot of American cinema is. And American cinema has been mostly uh, naturalistic, not in the independent sphere as much. Um, but but when you when you see in Angels to America, or uh, uh, there 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 is a cinematic feeling to that that transcends whether it's on a stage or on a screen um and i just think i just think that one of the wonderful things that's happened in the expansion of television particularly over the last 20 years is you've seen a lot of playwrights starting to work in television uh mostly because it helps pay the bills right And, and and as a result of that television in some ways has been more cinematically adventurous i think than, than mainstream American film. I mean, on the independent American film side, there's always um, a lot of adventurousness and has been since the advent of independent cinema. Um, but you, you can probably think of a lot of television shows yourself that break out of that naturalistic mode. Um, you know, and, and uh, often, I bet, if you looked at who's writing those shows, either who created them or who's in the room, you're going to find a lot of playwrights. Um, so to... To answer your question, I, 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 one of the things I've noticed actually is the reverse, that like in, in addressing the spareness of film and the fact that you know shooting seven pages in one day is considered like a lot, like a lot, a lot, and that you are thinking, wow, th- yeah, this line di- is going to cost me uh, $17,000, right? That, that bringing that spareness and that rigor and ruthlessness back to playwriting has changed my writing of plays and and i've i've you notice because you get a lot less precious you're like i don't need this and i'll cut the fat here and you know this scene really can be eight pages it doesn't need to be 16 you know oh wow now i've got eight new pages now i have to force myself to say is there what more can i do with this story that i haven't done that i was just sort of kind of you know indulging before or 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 sort of or banking or taking for granted that I can make the audience sit there. No, I value their time, you know? So, so I found that it has a really interesting and cool impact on, on at least for me, my playwriting. Um, so I think it, there, there really is a back and forth between the two. Alexander, anything to add? Any, any? I, I would agree with that. I, I, you know, I, it's a different language when you're moving from playwriting to television. Uh, I've I've seen a lot of novelists in a, in a writer's room struggle some because a novelist has to be the director and the costume designer and the production designer and you know has to has to play every single role and feels the need to do that in script. So that is that that that's tricky. Uh, speaking from my own personal experience, one thing I had to learn uh, going from theater to television is you know, in theater 
there is no camera. You know, the camera is not a participant the way it is uh, in film or, or, or TV. So you often write thinking, well, they might look anywhere, but the, the camera can, you know, can, can, can hone the eye towards, uh, towards a particular place uh, on screen, which, you know, is not as easy to do in theater. So frequently there are times when, you know, when, when you kind of write thinking that rather than it, uh, that that's something that I had to learn. What about um, like what about the kind of the adaptation process when it's whether whether it's going one way or another? Because we've seen TV series that get adapted for Broadway runs or for theater, and we've seen uh, you know theater pieces that get adapted for television. And you know a lot of people kind of um, have assumptions where they're just like, well, I've seen the story, so why wouldn't I want to? You know, why wouldn't it work over on this other medium? Um, and Rachel, you know, you worked with this a lot, especially when you were at Fox, um, you saw a lot of the kind of live stage musicals that went out there, but I mean, what are some of the things that people don't seem to realize when it's like, no, 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 this story will work. And this is going to be a, a much trickier beast. Like this is going to be a much trickier thing to, to pull off. I mean, I think that it's hard cause I mean, there are sort of two different things. If you're adapting a play for, you know, TV or film, the difference there is in this great expansion and and I think, you know, how you want to make something live and breathe in the wider world without feeling like you're losing the, the immediate connection and the intimacy that you had and, you know, everything that you get from being in the same space with, with someone and that you don't have that sort of magic to rely on. And for the other thing, so when I was at Fox, I, I did the live musicals like Grease Live and, and things like that. Um, and I always joke that I spent 10 years leaving theater for television only to wind up making theater for television. Um, but we were working a lot of things that were going the other way, too, of course. You know, as, as Ben was mentioning, a lot of like Broadway musicals that then are being based on like things that are, you know, the intellectual property of the corporation. Um, and I think there, the thing that you're going back to is, again, getting to that emotional core of it, you know, in terms of what makes a good adaptation in that way. It has to be something both that you feel like, if it's an existing property, that audiences out there feel a genuine connection to, like that there's a nostalgia to it. There's a like, oh my God, I remember this movie and I watched it like every day that summer that I was 12, you know, so there's something that, and then you have to find the right adapter to do it, who is going to be able to get inside of that world, but also feel like they're telling their own story entirely separate from the property that's there and saying, like, how do I use this as a vehicle to express something that I want to talk about? You know, that's the only way to, to reanimate it and potentially make it matter again. It has to matter to a new person doing it, too, not just to say, like, great. So I think that, you know, this part that happens like 17 minutes into the movie should probably happen like 34 minutes into the Broadway show. It's just like, that's, that's too technical and that's inert. Well, what about, I mean, what about for the writers in the room? Like, is there anything when you, when you either hear about a project that's going forward in one way or another, like an adaptation or, uh, you know, I mean, Bo, you obviously had to adapt your own work for the big screen at one point. I mean, what are the challenges that, that go into that? And what are the things you think about where you're like, oh, this could be interesting or they could take advantage of that. Or this is something that maybe, you know, they didn't expect they'd have to deal with, but it, it could be a trickier, uh, trickier adaptation to pull off. 
I don't have that much. Um, I adapted like a book for the stage. I did a House of um, Mango Street, House on Mango Street adaptation for Steppenwolf. That didn't go that well. Um, I, um the audience liked the the, the writer said I made her, a writer that we, as Latinas, we all respect so much, said I made her sacred language profane, so I was like, never again a living writer. Um, <laughs> never again. But so, the, and I tried a dead that writer. That should be on the poster. I'm like, I'll, I'll, I want to watch that. Make sacred language <laughs> profane. Um, and then I tried a dead writer, um, uh, Chekhov, and I adapted, you know, um, to, um, to Cherry Orchard to um, El Nogalar, what, and what's happening on the border now and stuff. So I just have those, you know, and I did sell a play of mine, but then nothing happened with it. So I, I feel like, personally, I don't know. I have opinions on stuff that comes out. I'm like, why? Um, <laughs> but but then some stuff I'm excited about. I don't know. I don't, th this one I don't have that many opinions on. Well, I... I I don't know. I don't. I don't usually think of like adapt. This is an adapted versus non adapted. Even though that's the Oscar category, it's like sometimes you're looking at a book. Sometimes you're looking at a play. It might be your own play. Sometimes you're researching something heavily, so it's like primary source. Uh, it's all a kind of adaptation from something. Either sometimes you're adapting your own life. So it's just it's just like what what are the things you're using that are going to go through the vessel. To end up being a thing, I don't. I mean, I'd be curious. Are you? How much are you allowed to talk about season two of the the terror? As much as you want. Okay. No. So for. What do you want to know? No. For, I'll tell you everything. No. So like, it, you guys know it's it's. I fade in season I, one. So like season one of terror is awesome, and it's season two. I imagine is going to be awesome as well. Mm. Um, it's going to. Be <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's but, up to you to decide. So you know, I'm I'm going to be Alexander's publicist for a second. Uh, it it is. Take, takes place in a Japanese internment camp, right? Largely. Okay. So, um, I mean, I don't know if you were looking at, if you guys optioned particular, like, books in order to, or if it was all research or consultants, but that's like a true adaptation, like a real thing that happened, and then you're adding some some supernatural elements to it, but you're, you must feel a great responsibility, like, to if you're, you're dramatizing that in a serious way, but you have to, what were you looking at? Uh, well, one, we have George Takei as a yes. consultant, so he, he lived through it, and he's maybe the most notable person uh, still alive who lived through the internment and, you know, and is also a working actor, so it made sense to have him uh, in the show. And then we worked with a number of different organizations like Den Show and the Japanese American National Museum and Heart Mountain Foundation, and then a massive library of, of books, and then interviews. <laughs> <clears throat> with survivors, you know, who are at this point, there's not that many left, you know, uh, who have memories of it. You have people who are very, very young children. Um, so the, the 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 opportunity that was presented uh, with television, and this is why, you know, to just circle back to uh, Ben, your original question is, I don't know of that many stage plays that have been adapted for television because the mediums are so so different. Now George did make a musical, a Broadway musical about the internment called Allegiance. And what that inspired for us was he used a genre, musical theater, to evoke the history and the experiences and the spectrum of, of emotions of the internment. Here we're using a genre which is uh, Japanese kaidan and, and, uh, and the Japanese horror movies that are ascended from it to, as an analog for the uh, terror of the historical experience. So we, we borrowed that part from it, but the great 
strength of television, the two things that it, that that uh, are are different. Re- well, there's many more than two things that are different, but uh, two of the big things that are very different from theater is the intimacy of television. Because in theater, it's a hundred or a thousand people all going in to experience one thing together. It's a big group experience, and that way, it's more like a, uh, a movie. Uh, and as opposed to television, which is very intimate, and the this show is coming to you. It's like someone whispering in your ear, uh, and it's you're sitting in well less and less in front of a television set. More and more screens are smaller and smaller and smaller, and uh, six inches in front of your face with the lights turned out. So it becomes increasingly intimate. So you know it, it lends itself to things that kind of worm in your brain a little bit, uh, which makes for sort of a creepy horror. Uh, makes it lend itself to creepy horror great. Uh, then the other thing is that television doesn't let you off the hook. You know, at the end of a stage play, as much as I would want it to, people can wash their hands of it at the end of it. They can go home, go back to their lives, and never have to think about it ever again. Uh, a TV show, at least one that's done well, you think about it for the next seven days. Uh, um, you know, it, if it's in the traditional model of where it airs, airs weekly. And you you worry about those characters. You you uh, get pissed off at them if they do something that angers you. You're happy for them, uh, and and uh, and you talk about them with your actual friends, you know, uh, for for the next seven days until the, you know it becomes like they're real, living, breathing people in your life, and that's an incredible power. And that becomes, I think, a better analog for the internment, which did not. You know, it wasn't over in two hours. And it, of course, it wasn't in over 10 weeks either. But it, it, it feels more like you're living through an extended experience. So that's why I think, I hope, television works better to tell that story because it was not over. It wasn't over when the camps closed. It continued for decades. There's decades of trauma following that. So I think, you know, that's where we really have an advantage using television as a medium. I'm so glad you brought that up because the extended experience of TV is is one of the like big differences when you look at you know when you look at a play and when you look at what you get out of going to a play and, and going into that theater and leaving versus staying with something. But um, all right, so I want to make sure we get to audience questions. We've got I mean about 15 minutes left, I believe. So if you have any questions, we've got a microphone right here in the middle of the room. Um, I think yeah, I think you just got to walk back. Sorry, we we're recording. HDX always has these for. Uh, for everybody's experience and everybody's enjoyment. So, um, yeah, go ahead, sir. Thank you. Hey, Tanya, uh, you are one fascinating person. <laughs> and so Validation. I'm, <laughs> I'm just curious about, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you really kind of learn by being thrown into the tank. And there's a benefit to that because you get all your senses involved and it's just sink or swim, but you do eventually swim versus I just like a handbook to let me know how it's all done. So, which really doesn't exist. So can you talk about that where this brought to you today through this transition from playwright to TV and, and that whole learning process? Cause that just seems intense, but. You could yeah. handle it. In the theater, I always had a chip on my shoulder that I didn't go to your school or one of the school, like an MFA in playwriting, and that I was just doing. I'm like, I'm just doing it. But then at the end of those 10 years, I was like, wait, I learned to do it by doing it, you know, by filling the seat. So it, it, but it took a while because, so um, and then in TV, it just happened. I, you know, an agent, um, an agent got a hold of a plate, just like how it happens, right? And then they took me out for lunch in the theater. They don't take you out for lunch, just coffee. So I was like, I ordered this. St- and like, I ordered everything. I was like, 
And um, and he was like, I didn't know. I kept calling him. Um, somebody from Uta wants to take me out for to sing in Uta. I didn't know because in Chicago we don't have Uta. We don't have UTA. You know. Somebody corrected me. It was UTA later. But um, he was like, just come take meetings. Um, talk about your dad's mistress like you did. Now it's interesting. And I didn't even notice I was talking about my dad's mistress, now wife. Um, and so I, then I did, I took all these meetings and talked about my dad's mistress, now wife. And, um, and then one of them was a job. I didn't know who Mark Cherry was. And I, it, was, it was an interview. And like all of it, like I didn't know you were supposed to read the thing you were going in for, all of it. But I ended up in a writer's room really unprepared. Like I'd never seen Final Draft. I didn't know what pitching was. Now it's more common even for lay people pitching. But I, like, when they were like, let's pitch on it. The first day I was like, I have no idea what that means. Like, I really don't, like, and everyone seemed to know. And also, I was the diversity hire. Um, and I got told that the first hour of the thing, uh, a coworker turned, who now we've made peace. We had breakfast about it not too long ago. Um, but he turned to me and he goes, you do know you're the diversity hire, right? And I was like, what's that? And he goes, oh, honey. And that whole oh honey stayed. And I was, so that first year was horrible, you know? But then it was the best trial by fire because now I know fine, a little bit. I still struggle with Final Draft. But, you know. It's buggy. But you learn. It's fine. Yeah. It's, it's really buggy. Yeah. But so, yes, I got in, in both ways, like, um, especially in TV. I didn't understand. And also, nobody explained to me because I didn't go to school for it again. Um, the politics of like being in writing a lat uh, for a Latina show and being the only Latina in there, being the diversity hire, most of them white men, I was like, how do I, am I, am I the ambassador for all Latinas, you know? Um, and it was really, you know, so, but yeah, it, um, thank God I didn't know who Mark Cherry was when I took that meeting, you know? Yeah, please go ahead. Thank you for a fascinating panel. Um, so you talked a little bit about adaptations or for the screen, and I know particular stories that are well-suited for whatever medium they're in, but are there TV shows or types of stories that you could see actually go the other way that you'd want to adapt for the stage? Chernobyl. Oh. <laughs> that was a joke, because I make, I make nuclear uh, meltdown jokes, right? Uh, but now that I think about it, man, how would you pull that off? So, In a Caucasian chalk circle way, like vibe, too? Wait, maybe we should. No. Well, it's like the musical of Chernobyl. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Maze of Roller Skates. It's going to be big. He made that a very funny show, so like, you might be able to pull something out of that. And... Oh, no, in theater, you could pull everything off. Like, it's absolutely possible you know, to, to make a musical of Chernobyl. I'm sure someone will do it. All things will happen. <laughs> Yeah, there may be a difference between adapting something into a musical, which some things might be suited for, or a stage play. I, I, I'm speaking completely, you know, just like off the top of my head, maybe some sitcoms might be better suited. You know, I, I know uh, The West End did a, an adaptation of, the, of a show called Allo Allo, which did really well. Uh, but it's a farce, you know, it works well because theater, you know, I, I wrote farces for seven years. I, you know, I, I, I love how that works in a theatrical space. So you know, you do that kind of uh, that that kind of piece. It's really it, it's really great for a live experience. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Next up. This has been a really fun session, by the way. So thank you so much for starting off my morning. <laughs> um, yesterday at camp, they started off the session with asking everybody to turn to someone and tell them what their favorite television show was, and I was like, "Wow, this is a really good." 
way to like assess your fellow peers. So I want to know what all of your favorite television shows are that are not your own. I'm just going to go right now because it's like it was so immediate when you said it. But I was like, right now, Fleabag. I was like, that was what I, I, that's why I had to say it first so I could claim it. And that was a play. That was a play. But yeah. yes, I mean, again, perfect, perfect answer that that started out as a play and evolved into season one. And then to figure out, like, first of all, how did you take it from a monologue, a monologue. to bring it out to all these other characters? And then how do you go into season two and not just tell you know, the one singular story of this character, but how does this character grow and change over time? And that's what I think is so beautifully resonant about season two. I won't spoil it if you haven't seen it, but like in season one, part of what I loved was the, the intense tonal shifts and and the fact that you were both hilariously laughing and horrified and sad all at the same time. And that, you know, it was all genres in one. It's like, it's half hour, it's a comedy, but also it's like the most tragic thing that I've seen, but also it's still funny right now as it's being sad. And then to have someone, the character, go into season two and feel like it's not just the trick of season one of the direct address and the way that they deal with that direct address specifically in season two to say what that says about the character, the way they like break the mold of what they've been doing is just... you know, I don't think there are a ton of shows that make you reckon with, like, what is it to be a human being in this world? But I think that one does. Yeah. And so theatrical that nobody has names is Fleabag, priest, mother, you know, or stepmom or whatever. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, that one. But I'm going to say Gentleman Jack. Are you, anybody, yes. any queers that are watching Gentleman Jack? Yeah, nobody. So um, I, I keep giving it Twitter love. I'm just like, <laughs> Please, HBO, make a page for it. Like, even, like, like it enough to make a, um, a page for it. I'm crazy about it. Um, I don't know if you've, yeah. Gentlemen, favorites? Uh, um, there, there's a few of them lately. Uh, uh, I, I thought Sex Education was brilliant. Yes. Holy shit, that was a good show. Um, and uh, I thought Escape from Donnemara for me was incredible. Uh, and um, Chernobyl, I actually thought was incredible and when they see us which i'm only halfway mm. through but oh my god um so yeah those, those are a few and and this is not a scripted thing but uh have you guys seen um uh salt fat acid yeah. heat yeah. i could just watch that for forever <laughs> i'm like you only made four of them um at at what else at what is there beyond like do vegetable, uh, you know. Do umami. Do umami, yeah. Sriracha. I'll watch. I don't. I don't. I don't even know what sriracha is. I'll watch that episode. Make more of them. Was that question for your favorite television show ever, or your favorite television show that's on? When I answered it, I answered my favorite television show ever, which is nine hundred two and zero. Sorry. Um, totally. But honestly, I love that everyone is giving me what's on because it also, if I haven't watched it, which I've watched almost everything except for one thing that you said this, so I want to talk to you later. Um, but yeah, whatever, whatever. Like I feel like is your passion point at TV I'll, I'll, now or later. I'll or... go into the Everless, but th- th- there's five shows that like everyone mentions all the time, so I'll, I'll avoid those because you okay. know what they are. Uh, but Because I, I, I have to say, even though it's had almost zero influence on my writing, but a huge influence on my life is Monty Python's Flying Circus. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish it could have. Uh, I, I could have just ended up just writing that kind of sketch comedy my whole life, but it, it didn't go that way. Thank you. I loved all those things. 
Thank you so much. Whoa. Hello. Um, thank you all for doing this. Gracias. Um, I'm actually going to go the diff a different direction, more on your playwright mind. If you could recommend either an up-and-coming or one uh, playwright of color that has been an influence on y'all, well, who would it be? Wait, up-and-coming or, or a, a playwright of color that's been an influence? Either or. Okay. Um, well, I, Luis Alfaro. Um, that playwright who um, took on the Greeks and has done him through a Chicano lens um, has been, was my mentor and also I discovered him and also as an actress I was in a um, play of him at the Goodman um, and so like he's just been like a padrino for me hmm. you know so hey, uh, Luis Alfaro definitely I'll say just a, a people that I remember being struck by when I first met them um Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, who of course like is a MacArthur genius now. So I was like, I don't know if he gets to be up and coming, but no. yeah. I met him first like in a coffee shop in New York, you know, and that way when you're only affording coffee for people. Yeah. And I was just like, and you know, he was maybe like 25 years old and I read a play of his and I was like, they're going to teach this play in colleges. This is going to be a syllabus forever. Like you are changing things. And, and that idea of being that young and that boldly taking on race in like a way that was deeply uncomfortable and in your face and yet also totally theatrical in like the most spectacular ways um, that, you know, it really stuck with me. Uh, big influence for me, Susan Laurie Parks. Uh, yeah, man. And, and then, and then the, my first teacher, the person who first believed in me as a playwright and said, come study with me was a player is a playwright named Eduardo Machado. Um, oh, yeah. You should read his floating Island plays. Yeah. Um, he's not as well known as he should be, uh, but but his and his work now is like way out there, like crazy bold stuff. Um, but uh, but yeah, those two for me. Uh, for a playwright of color, I would I I would because I, she's fresh in my mind because she she you know passed away uh, um, in the past year is uh, Irene Fornes. Oh God, yes. So you know, just Eduardo's teacher, but yeah, yeah. Uh, my teacher too. I studied so, under her. Did you so, uh, did you happen to study under her? I, I didn't. I, yeah. uh, she she was uh, Susan Laurie Parks. This is how old I am. So is, is that I was I was a student in Susan Laurie Park Susan Laurie Parks's first ever class. First time she ever taught a class. I was I was in that class. That's a long time ago. <laughs> um. The other little anecdote about how old I am is that is that my high school algebra teacher was a translator uh, at Yalta for FDR and Stalin. Oh. <laughs> I, I, I told that story once at a, at, a, at a cocktail party, and, and then I realized as the words came out of my mouth how old that made me seem. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Gracias por todos. Thank you for the question. Uh, go ahead. Hi, this is a boring one, but just in case there are any uh, funny stories and anecdotes out of it, um, just down the line, how y'all got your first agents? With a lunch? You yeah. know? <laughs> um, did somebody read my, like, uh, one of my plays? And again, I got an email from an Uta yeah. guy. And, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Did you say Uta to the... I did. I did said to everyone because I was like, Uta, Uta, and no one corrected me until like, late after I'd met with with him. Yeah. And I'm sure I've said Uta and he, I, he might've been like, what is, is he saying puta? Like, what is he saying? Um, but, but it, it doesn't have periods. Yeah. It doesn't say UTA. It says Uta. 
Anyway, but that's the same that's story that I... Yeah. But you didn't submit it to no. Uta. They no. just contacted you. Yeah, I don't know how. They found it. That's awesome. Yeah. But we don't have agents now, do we? All right. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Good point. I'm, I'm the president of the Writers Guild of America East, so I'm probably not the right guy to ask. <laughs> um, no, the quick answer. Back in the day, before <laughs> yeah, the we quick, don't have agents, quick and that's answer awesome. Is I was living in complete obscurity in, in theater land. I'd never uh, had a play produced or anything like that. I was doing stuff in the bottom of the drama bookshop on 40th Street uh, with uh, Lynn. Lynn Manuel was down there, Billy Eichner was down there, Liz Merriweather was down there, and we would all just do readings for each other, like people drinking tall boys sitting in folding chairs because no one else would watch our stuff. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I had, a, I had a friend who had had a meeting with AMC. They were looking for particular types of shows. He didn't have any of anything along those ideas. And uh, he goes, do you have anything? I'm like, I do have something. Uh, we went in, we pitched it, they bought it, and I got... His agent was like, I'll take you on, too. So, uh, yeah. I don't think there's... You, you should write all this stuff down, uh, but then there's also a thousand million other ways, and there is no one way. Yeah. Um, yeah, you just got to hustle and hustle. And and, and uh, <clears throat> very important, like, you can't do it on your own. Like, you, you, you just have to find the people that are your champions, your friends, um, support each other. Uh, maybe you'll get an agent before your friend does and bring them into a project or vice versa. Um, find those people, you know. Yeah. And also now you have iPhones and uh, cameras. That you, you can make content. And yeah. that, like, I, I even feel dated, even though it didn't happen that long ago when they discovered a play. Now they discover a web series or a short or something. You have so much power now yeah. um, to create content. And that's, and that's if it... Um, you know, catches fire a little bit, they'll either come to you or manage or something, or, yeah. you know, you have that calling card. Uh, very quickly. I, I had a, a play in New York that uh, uh, I wouldn't say it did well, but it got a, a very complimentary view <laughs> in the New York Times. And I was part of a migration from the late 90s, early 2000s of playwrights uh, to television. And there was a bit of a, an interest in playwrights at the time. And uh, I got a, a call from two uh, um, sons of Uta. Uh, <laughs> were there, and they, you know, uh, they were until uh, until this April. My agents ever since. Mine was Ka. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you say W. I mean, the, the one Winnie? thing I would say. Winnie and Ica. Yeah. <laughs> the one thing I'd say about all of this is, you know, I think that before you're in it, there's a sense of like, oh, how do I get them to take me on? How do I get them to want me? It's like, no, no, they need you, yeah. you know, say to everything that's going on right now. It's like that really there is no business unless yeah. like you're out there making things. People want to find you. And and as Tanya said, like there are so many more ways to put your stuff out in yeah. the world now so that you can be found. And it is like word of mouth and friends of friends. And there's a lot of different ways that it happens. But I would say to be confident and be like, I am a person who makes things and I'm going to make them and they are worth being made regardless of what anyone says to me initially, like they will find their audience. That's so important. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, one of the things we did in the guild is a member survey um, is we even even of all the people that had agents, 75 percent of writers still got their jobs, not through their agents and mostly through other writers. 
you know, the people you came up with, like uh, someone whose play you saw that you loved and you like fanboyed or fangirled them and wrote them an email, got a coffee, and then two years later, you go, hey, what are you up to? You want to come work on my show with me? Um, so, and what we're finding now because of the, the current struggle is, because we, we is that, we're, oh, we're just going to continue to do what we've always done, which is actually employ ourselves and each other. We're hustlers. We're, you, find, you, you have a necessary thing you need to say, and you're going to find people that will listen to you. And usually at first, it's just your fellow writers, you know, yeah. in the basement of a bookshop. Um, but, but that necessity in you is what an entire industry is built on. You know, um, and it's so important, especially when you're starting out and you feel like you're just screaming in the wilderness and no one can hear you, is that you hear yourself and you found a few other people that hear you. And that need, that need will carry you forward and will, if you've got talent, you know, you might not get your break in year one. Some people get their year, their break in year 20. You can't predict that, but you just keep at it and you keep surrounding yourself by the people that are doing the same. And that's your that's that's way more important than any agency um, or, or any you know studio exec or anything like that. It's that's that is they all exist because of that, you know. And you just got to keep reminding yourself that. I'm staffing right now, and um, and then I realize, wait, I found out my writers by myself because I you know the whole Latinx thing, and I'm like. What have I been using my agents for? You know, um, because I haven't. If I if I go back, it's like you said, people that I had coffee with a couple of days. You know, people I'm in a brunch group with. People like I've been keeping track of, and it's it's been that. And now the thing that's hard is um, I'm. I'm trying to like find availability and everyone's working. I'm like, everyone's working this <laughs> staffing season. You know, I mean, all the Latinx that I'm reaching out to that, which is like, wait. I, I hope they're listening, you know, but I was like, we, we're doing fine. I mean, yes. Okay, I'm going to shut up. <laughs> but what, to Tanya's point, which is, which is important, is that, you know, in, in all of our cases, we had a piece of content out there yeah. that, that people responded to and could read and could, could uh, consume. And, and now it's easier than ever, you know, for you. It could be on YouTube. It could, yeah. you know, it could be anywhere. Uh, it, you know, we all did it through stage plays, but it could be through any, any means at all. And, and that's how, you know, you get, you get someone's attention. It doesn't necessarily have to be an agent. It could be a yeah. showrunner. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, was, tried to staff, you know, with as many Japanese American writers as I could. I went deep into the playwriting pool. Uh, I lucked out by getting the, the greatest Japanese American playwright of my generation. Yeah, you know, but that was a stroke of luck. You know, she happened awesome. to be free. Uh, uh, I mean, if you have something out there, it'll be found. Okay. Thank you, guys. So basically, my takeaway is if I just keep making good shit and putting it out there, and preferably shorter, like stuff so people will watch the whole thing and keep supporting my tribe and finding my tribe, someone will eventually pay me for this. No promises. And but maybe. Fair enough. <laughs> and, and, and I don't know about the shorter thing. I mean, uh, I guess, you, yeah, you got to... Maybe you got to be strategic, but honestly, uh, whatever you need to write, and even if it's 17 hours long, if it's if it's amazing, you know, like don't don't pander to what you think people want. Okay, okay. thank you. What guys they so want much. is actually what they don't know they want until you show it to them. Yeah, thanks, y'all. Right. Well, thank you so much for your question. We're going a little bit over. Do you have a quick one by chance? Quick, quick. Sure. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, real quick, just the title of the first play that you went to that actually like pulled you into the theater. Great. Angels in America. Yeah. 
Six degrees of separation. Grey's Anatomy. And Butterfly. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for coming out. Enjoy the rest of the festival. Thank you, panelists. You are welcome. Kate. Emily. Question. Answer. If you had the most brilliant idea. I do. What is it? I'm not telling you. <laughs> Fine. Let's say you had the most brilliant idea for a new TV show. Oh. Different okay. category. Okay. What would you do? What would be your first step? You have this idea that you dream about. You think about while you're eating, about while you're walking around, about while you're listening to this right now. And all you want to do is yell it into whatever listening device you have. I have the most brilliant idea. This is a TV show that should exist in the world. I mean, I'd probably tell you. But then I don't know. I don't. How would I get it made? You know what I would tell you to do? If you told me. I would tell you. But you're not really you. Like in this case scenario, we're not us. Great. Just stay with me here. Then I would tell you you should submit to ATX Television Festival's The Pitch Competition. That's a great idea. Yes. That is a great idea, except I'm not eligible. Nope. You are not. Okay. So because I'm not eligible, whoever is listening to this, can you do me a favor? If you have a great idea, it's just, it's sad that I can't make my dream come true this way, but you can. You should submit to The Pitch Competition. But Emily, will you tell me, I mean them, how to do that? Yes. You go to atexfestival.com backslash pitch. Great. Step one, internet. Internet. And then all you have to do is submit a 90-second video pitch of your idea. It does have to be a scripted idea. Okay. No, we are not making reality shows at this point in time. Great. Scripted. And you also have to have a five to ten page writing sample. Okay. Check. Two things. So you go, you fill out the form, you upload them. There are very specific instructions on how to do that. FAQs, I'm sure. And you have until January 17th. Just mark that day on your calendar. Right. And then through a series of rounds Mm -hmm. with some of our screeners and judges. Like the Blacklist and Sundance Labs and executives and such. And showrunners and producers. and TV fans. People who make TV. But they are all TV fans. Great. Great. Then after that, we... They, our judges, select the top 10 finalists, uh-huh. and those top 10 finalists pitch live at the festival. And like they, a live studio audience. Yes, like a live studio audience. Oh, and then the winner is then mentored by one of our judges mm-hmm. or other ATX panelists, mm-hmm. and then you get to pitch live to... Yeah, at you this point, you live. definitely pitch live. But, you pitch but then you get to pitch to our studio network partners. Oh, to maybe like see if they want to buy it? Uh, that to then make the TV show. <gasps> Guys, you're so lucky. I'm screwed, but <laughs> you're lucky because like I'm it's it's I'm guessing it's illegal for me. You said that, right? It's yep. illegal for it me. It is to definitely do it. illegal for you to submit this way. Great. I'll um, find another way. But you guys do this. It's much simpler. But if you go to atxfestival.com backslash pitch, all the information is there. But really the only thing that you have to have is an amazing idea for a new TV show and a writing sample. Yep. From now until when did you say? When does it end? January 17th. Great. ATXfestival.com backslash pitch. I'm just asking for a friend. We'll tell your friend they should go and pitch now. We're here with Alex Wu, and I'm going to have you introduce what you're here for. You were you already had your panel, actually. We did, yeah. Yeah, so it was the terror. Yes. And then, But I have to say infamy, too. The terror, yes. colon, and I don't know if you're supposed to say colon. <laughs> the terror, colon, infamy. It's not a colon infamy. <laughs> it's not the infamy of someone's colon. It, no. is, it is the terror, colon, infamy. How was the panel? Uh, it was great. It was great. We screened the show for the first time for the public. Yeah, how was that? Um, Hearing reaction? 
Uh, great. It, it's you know, it's not a comedy, so you can't count on people laughing. And I, I used to be a playwright, and I used to write these crazy comedies, so I would count on how much pe- or how little people laughed. Yeah. Um, this time you had some gasps, you, you had a, a, some squeamish kind of, kind of sounds, uh, which I think was good. Right. I hope. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's it's also not a uh, jump scare kind of uh, uh, kind of scary. It's a you know creep slow creep kind of scary so you know you don't have people screaming at the screen or you know or or uh, or, or, or you know, jumping out of their seats mm-hmm. uh, as much as you know coming away deeply disturbed that's interesting going from being you know writing plays to then doing television because you don't get to see the audience react as you did no it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a big difference uh um going from one medium to the other and it was a long transition it i think it took me about five years to uh, to fully get comfortable mm-hmm. working uh, working in television, and uh, and as it turns out, there's a large part of the job of a television writer that has nothing to do with the actual act of writing. There is sitting in a room, breaking episodes with with other people, which mm-hmm. you never do as a playwright. Uh, there's prep, there's production, there's post, all of these things that I never had to deal with as a playwright. And uh, I like it personally because it challenges other parts of my brain, but it may not suit everyone. One of the questions we're asking this weekend is, why does TV matter so much right now? Because it feels like it really matters. It's what everybody talks about. Mm-hmm. At least it kind of opens up a new conversation when you meet somebody. You know, what, what show are you watching? Mm-hmm. Um, but why do you think TV matters so much? Well, it has an incredible reach. Yeah, uh, just about everyone uh, in this country, at least, has access uh, to TV in, in one form or another. It doesn't necessarily even have to be on a TV set. In fact, increasingly, it's less and less yeah. on uh, a traditional television set. Uh, but it's a it's a uh, a common culture that uh, that everyone everyone has. Uh, um, not everyone. You know, uh, goes to the movies anymore. Uh, a lot of people, obviously, a lot of people. The you know, Avengers is proof that a lot of people go to the <laughs> movies. Um, but you know, uh, you know, TV because of its uh, uh, of its enormous uh, reach is this sort of central cultural touchstone that everyone can uh, can uh, align themselves with. Now, it's interesting because there's so much of it. The uh, uh, the audience could become increasingly fractured. So now with five million shows on, the TV I watch might not be the TV you watch, may not be the TV that the next person watches. So there may be less common uh, ground uh, than there was uh, even a few years ago. So it remains to be seen how that plays out. I have to comment, your socks and shoes are really fun. You're like super serious on top with a nice, you know, jacket and, and shirt. And then you, are you a fun socks guy? Uh, I, I, w- I wish everyone on the podcast could see it. I know. For the first time wearing fun footwear. And oh, you know, no normally wear fun footwear? Uh, un- un- unless like feet are fun. You know? <laughs> yeah, but who is the monster in your shoe? <laughs> uh, this is a, a Magritte painting. Oh. Where, yeah, this is, uh, this is one of the great... Uh, Magritte paintings, and then I have a pair of socks with socks on them. Oh, that's sort of cute. Meta I like it. <laughs> statement. The, the, the colors complete, completely clash, but this was the most fun I could have. Well, uh, have you been to Austin before and to this TV festival? I haven't been to ATX before. I have been to Austin oh, before have you? a number of times. I have friends here. Um, I love it here, but this is the first time at ATX. I'm glad I'm here. I'd it's, love to come back. It's fun to come and celebrate television. And another fun thing is to think about, like, what is your first 
memory of television. Maybe it was something your parents watched or something your grandma watched that was always in the house or, you know, something that you wanted to watch. You know, it's interesting uh, that you asked that because I I feel like I was raised by the television set. I was raised you know, uh, in a Chinese immigrant household, so my parents were working all the time. Mm-hmm. I was raised by my great aunt and my great grandmother, who were you know at the time in their seventies and nineties, respectively. So uh, uh, you know they didn't have much facility with the English language. So all the English I learned really. I think came from the TV. Oh, really? You know, and I, I grew up in in New York and North Jersey, and I I don't think I have that accent. I think because I was learning that sort of flat, neutral American affect that was so common and still is so common yeah. uh, in American television. So, what were you watching? A lot of kids shows. You know, okay. uh, uh, you know if you're going for my f- absolute first memories, you know, it was it was all. Now, you know, your Sesame Street and Electric Company and okay. Mr. Rogers. Uh, but then as I became conscious of other kids watching shows, uh, everyone was talking about a show called Chips. Yeah. Which was not about chips, at least potato chips. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought. I thought was a show about yeah. potato chips. That was wrong. I was confused. Uh-huh. And then and then Happy Days. Yeah. So that, you know, you can... Now, did your, did your great aunt and gra- great grandmother also watch those shows with you, or was that no. uh, something you did not have in common and they did not watch it with no, you? No, they did not watch it. It would be, you know, something to put me in front of, oh, okay. so that they could do other things with their lives. Um, they, uh, you know, <laughs> they were running the house uh, while my parents uh, were working. So, you know, in, in many ways, that the television was sort of my my companion mm-hmm. uh, uh, growing up. So. I'd watch whatever was on, so it'd be a lot of you know, all your Saturday morning cartoons, yeah. a lot of sports. You know, uh, uh, the thing I do remember watching with my great aunt was cooking shows because there was no there was no language barrier. She could understand cooking shows just as easily as uh, as, as you know someone who right. you know, spoke English. So uh, uh, that's something uh, we we watched together. When you need a pick me up and you've had a bad day, what's your TV pick me up? What's your, like, go-to? You know you're going to get a laugh. Uh, I'll say, first of all, that I probably access it through YouTube rather than television because it's easier, right? Uh-huh. I can go YouTube. I'm like, I want to watch. So it tends to be sketch comedy. Okay. Uh, and, and, my, and you'll watch it just in fragmented yeah, sketches? Okay. Yeah. So uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus is, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, like, the, the granddaddy of all of it and then everything descended from a lot of british uh comedy and then the kids in the hall you know, oh yeah in, in the you know at least in north america um you know all the sort of surreal and kind of nerdy <laughs> sketch comedy is the thing that i love most and uh just last question with summer here what are some shows that you think everybody should check out aside from your show aside from my own <laughs> Yikes. What is premiering in the summer? Or, or just like, even, like, it can be an old show. It can be a show you think that someone should binge that's already come out. Uh, Chernobyl is amazing. Is it? Okay. You know, uh, um, uh, uh, you know uh, um, How They See Us. Uh, oh, yeah, that just came out on H. Where is the... When they see us. When. When they see us. Yeah. When they see us. Uh-huh. Uh, it's fantastic. Okay. You know, there's, there's a lot of shows that... Uh, that call that that sort of demand uh, viewership because it's important. 
So, and those are the things because there's so much out there. There's, there's a reason for existing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those are the shows that I, f I find myself uh, uh, gravitating towards uh, because there is 60 years of, of television. If I just want something to just like, you know, uh, uh, like snack food, there's plenty of that too. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Sarah. The TV Campfire is produced by Caitlin McFarland, Emily Gibson, and AJ Myers, along with our audio partners, Five Ohm Productions. Mark your calendars. ATX TV Festival Season 9 is happening June 4th through 7th, 2020 in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit atxfestival.com and follow us on social media at ATX Festival. And be sure to check out our episode notes for a very special discount on badges exclusive to the TV Campfire podcast listeners. As always, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. And stay tuned for even more exclusive releases each week.